Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird. Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hello, it's Mike from Sunspot. Just wanted to say hi to everybody, and it's been a while since we talked, but Wendy and I were going through the archives, and we discovered a live stream from May of 2020 that we never uploaded as a podcast. And this is a great one, because this is famous paranormal researcher and author Nick Redfern taking a stab at one of the biggest UFO mysteries in his native Britain, and that's Rendlesham. And so he was about to release this book on what he believes is the Rendlesham UFO conspiracy, and he lays out a pretty good argument for it. So uh, we wanted to go back. Wendy and I did this as a live stream back in May of 2020, and now we're sharing it with you because the information in there is just as good and as interesting as it ever was. So here, check out Wendy and I with a conversation with Nick Redfern. See you on the Other Side podcast, Secret Experiment. We're talking about Nick Redfern and the Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy. In the final days of December 1980, strange encounters and bizarre incidences occurred in the heart of Rendlesham Forest, Suffolk, England. Based upon their personal encounters, many of the military personnel who were present at the time believed that something extraterrestrial came down in those dark woods. What if, however, there was another explanation? What if something else happened four decades ago that wasn't extraterrestrial? If revealed, this explanation might prove to be even more controversial than the theory that aliens arrive from a faraway world. The ramifications for the field of ufology would be immense, and in his new sensational book, Nick Redfern reveals that one of the most famous UFO cases of all time was really a series of top-secret experiments using holograms, mind-control programs, deception, disinformation, conspiracies, and cover-ups. And now the shocking truth can finally be revealed. Mr. Nick Redfern, how are you doing today in Texas? Hey, Mike. I'm doing good. Thanks. How's it going? It's all right here. A little cold, but we're going we're gonna to make it through. And one of these days, it will be summer again. Uh, that's what we're really hoping for. Um, so, you know, Nick, Wendy and I first really learned about the, uh, the Rendlesham Forest incident uh, from a presentation that was given by Peter Robbins. And I'm sure you've read uh, his book um, about the Rendlesham UFO incident. And so... Yeah, Left at Eastgate. Yeah, and a a fascinating book. And he, you know, he gets really detailed. And so for people who might not be um, familiar with the incident in the first place, can you give us just a a quick summation of what's often known as Britain's Roswell? Yeah, sure. Well, it occurred um, the later part of December 1980, actually just in the uh, same period as, as the Christmas, period, Christmas holidays. And um, you have two uh, bases, Royal Air Force Bentwaters and Royal Air Force Woodbridge. And both of them, they're closed down now, but when they were up and running, um, they were sort of no distance at all from Rendlesham Forest. And the story is that on the, the 28th of, uh, well, actually starting on the 26th or the 27th, um, there were a number of UFO incidents, not just one, um, in and around the uh, forest itself. And a number of the military personnel reported seeing strange lights and got permission to go out there. And that's when it kind of got really weird when the contingent of military personnel, which were U.S. Uh, military personnel who were stationed on a UK base. That's basically how it worked. And they started to see strange lights in the sky and balls of light. And uh, there was a report of some sort of uh, looking like a craft in the woods as well. Um, There was a degree of missing time on some of the personnel. And, And it was a really sort of strange situation. Uh, because nobody had really experienced anything like that in the UK, as far as we know, 
you know, this sort of strange situation of all these array of lights in the sky. It's almost kind of like um, the closing stages of Close Encounters of Third Kind, where right. you've got all these, um, you know, lights flitting around in the darkness. And the story at the time was hidden. And what happened was that um, Colonel Charles Holt, um, who was a deputy base commander at uh, Royal Air Force Bentwaters, he prepared a report to the British Ministry of Defence. And while he was, while he was out into the woods with the other guys, he actually made an audio recording um, or of at least part of the time they were out there. And... The story was successfully um, withheld, even though there were some rumours in the area and a couple of UFO researchers did hook into it. But for the most part, the story was hidden until 1983, which was when one of the um, UK tabloids, the News of the World, um, uncovered the story. And that's when the whole thing really kicked off, and that's when you had people starting to research um, the case and look into it and um, and all different th uh, theories came forward. You know, it was aliens or was it sort of a, a Russian spy satellite that had come in, that sort of spiralled out of orbit and come down? So, so even back then, you know, there were theories, different theories as to what might have happened. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I always find fascinating about it is that it's, it's kind of like a, a, a classic end of the Cold War scenario, it feels, because uh, you have the American station there at this British Air Force base, and um, it, you know, in in the book and the memories of, the recovered memories of some of the people that had experiences, there's a whole thing about, like, underground bases and experiments, and, you know, that they knew that the aliens were already there, and that the place was much more than just a regular kind of Air Force Base. Um, and, you know, when you were doing your research for this book, um, you know, rather than just the, the lights in the sky and the things that people had seen, um, how much credence did you give the, uh, the tales of the secret bases and the underground lairs and everything that that uh, also goes along with the extended Rendlesham mythology? Well, uh, it's it's interesting you bring that up, Mike, because um, when you you know you talk about the Cold War and the base being more than just it seemed to be, well, you, you actually uh, picked on a very important aspect. Now, a lot of people, you know, have heard of the case and they've heard of Rendlesham Forest, where the UFO event. What a lot of people won't know. Um, is the fact that going back to 1935, you know, which is getting close, not too far off from 100 years ago now, oh, but um, in 1935 was when the British government and the military started to perform a lot of really weird um, experiments and tests in, in relation to radar. For example, in 1935, the British government set up what was called the Tizard Committee, which was one of the earliest um, UK-based radar-based operations to, to try and determine, you know, how radar could actively and successfully uh, be used, you know, if Hitler decided to, um, you know, advance on the UK um, in the Second World War. And there was another one in the 1950s called Cobra Mist, which was a top-secret um, radar operation. And you also had the very strange story of a little village called Shingle Street, where supposedly a number of German soldiers tried to secretly invade the UK from the, uh, from the uh, North Sea. And this, the story is that the, the Germans were killed by some sort of weapon that literally sort of set them on fire in the ocean, or in the sea, I should say, as they were getting to the, the land. Now, the reason why I mention all this, this sort of strange experiment at Shingle Street where the, the German soldiers got killed, um, the radar committees and all this uh, Cobra mist, this sort of highly advanced radar program, all of these things, the Tizard Committee, Cobra Mist and Shingle Street, all of them are less than 10 miles from where Rendlesham Forest is. So, in other words, if you look back throughout history, you see that Rendlesham Forest isn't just your 
regular forest. Mm. In and around the woods themselves, we've had all these weird experiments going back and forth for pretty much like 85 years. And so my view is we have to sort of look into this story not just from the perspective of a UFO event, but looking at what the military has been doing, sort of, as I said, 85 years in and around those woods. And, and when you realize that all those experiments, as I said, were less than 10 miles, all of them less than 10 miles from Rendlesham Forest, I think you have to really, at the very least, address the issue that, you know, the, the, the whole place has been like a hotbed of um, top secret experimentation. Right. So uh, what's interesting there is it's the idea that uh, Rendlesham and that area has been like the government's guinea pig scientific playground uh, for, you know, for for almost a century. Now, there there was one quick thing I wanted to ask about that because you you mentioned the radar thing. And um, I thought I remembered hearing that uh, one of the disinformation stories when they were developing radar um, so that the Germans... Uh, you know, wouldn't kind of glean on to uh, what the allies were doing. Uh, one of the disinformation stories had to do with like extraterrestrial or like paranormal technology, didn't it? Or um, am I misremembering that? Well, I mean, well, there's no doubt that the military in the 1940s in and around that area, you know, were using radar, you know, to make to, to determine how, you know, accurate radar was back then you know, in the event of um, a Russian attack and during the Second World War, you know, a Nazi attack. And and admittedly, you know, they did sometimes get sort of weird uh, recordings, but I think that was more due to the fact that the radar systems back then were very much in their infancy, you know. Um, so it's difficult to to say for sure, you know, with some of these early experiments in radar, were they picking up genuine radar images you know or was it just due to the fact that they were still very much you know trying to figure out the best ways to you know to to use radar well and um and kind of tying into what i think um is is some of the gist of your book um is that idea though of uh, the extraterrestrial part of it that you know it's it's aliens coming down and saying hi it's you know ufo's mm -hmm. Um, and not something terrestrial, used as, you know, a cover story for uh, something, you know, a little more sinister. Well, not a little more sinister. <laughs> probably when it's a secret <laughs> experience, probably a lot more sinister. So, you know, when did you first start thinking um, that uh, there might be a, a different explanation than kind of what we've all been thinking about for a long time is we're like, okay, this is Britain's Roswell. This is where the army guys, you know, the, the air, I'm sorry, the air force guys, um, you know, had an encounter, uh, in the UK. Uh, when did you start thinking, well, let's go to a different path. Kind of what prompted that mm -hmm. for you? Well, I didn't sort of go down the path of, you know, looking for an alternative scenario just for the sake of it. Um, I think it's important also to note that the first book that came out on Rendlesham, which was called Sky Crash, uh, uh, written by Jenny Randalls, Dot Street, and Brenda Butler, and it was published in 1984. And even back then, there were rumors of things like, could it have been like an early stealth plane and um, or an early kind of drone? Uh, and as I said earlier, you know, some sort of Russian thing that had come down. So even though the most of the books through up to the early 2000s um, focused on the extraterrestrial angle, just about all the authors um, had sort of at least addressed, you know, perhaps one chapter in, in their books, you know, to the alternative theories. And one that cropped up not very often, and it was almost sort of dismissed as just a little rumor, was the idea, or the scenario, I should say, of the guys in the woods being exposed to two particular things for the most part, one of them being sophisticated holograms and the other one being hallucinogens, which would sort of radically alter their mindset. And to me, that seemed, when I sort of 
first heard of that and then I started to specifically look further into it and one of the things I found was that most other people in the Rendlesham arena so to speak would touch on it but wouldn't go much further than a sentence or a you know a couple of paragraphs and I thought well you know this one occasionally pops up and it seems potentially credible so I started to look into it probably I started round about 18 months to two years ago and just putting all the pieces quietly and carefully together and then looking into the um, the history of the organizations that could have been involved and began to see sort of um, a trend come together like a picture come together to the point where um, in today I, I fully believe that um, Rendlesham was some sort of like a psychological uh, warfare operation where essentially the program I think was designed to see the extent to which the human mind could be um, played around with and the extent to which military personnel could be placed in a situation where they were seeing something that was very different to reality so in other words the the whole program was in its infancy very young um and it was designed to see how troops military personnel on the battlefield in dangerous situations how things could really be turned into a, an, an even more dangerous state by suddenly projecting these imagery and in uh, conjunction with hallucinogens. So in other words, if you could cause people to see aliens and UFOs on the battlefield, in essence, you could make them see anything. So in mm. other words, it was, the, it was a test of a new technology that would be utilized on the battlefield. That's a cool story right, <laughs> right there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, what a powerful weapon to have. <laughs> right. Well, and... yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, you know, if you've got a technology which can present before your eyes just about whatever the, the creators uh, want you to see, that would be an amazing tool. And, of yeah. course, you only need the enemy to freeze for a few moments and get panicky and confused as to what's going on and what should they do, what should their response should be, you know, that few minutes could be all that, you know, the other side would need to to sort of wade in and, you know, the battle's over. That reminds me of that uh, movie that came out a few years ago called um, A Field in England, I think it was. And it was, yeah. it was about medieval, um, like, guys, like warriors that go somewhere and they ha they encounter these hallucinogenic mushrooms accidentally and so all these psychedelic and crazy experiences happen to them but of course it's you know it's all in their minds um but that idea of using uh, a psychedelic as uh, a weapon to confuse people or make them hug or something like that be like oh man or maybe stop shooting because they get that like we are all one dude um kind of thing <laughs> Uh, I mean, that would be a, a, an interesting weapon. Um, something, even giving you a few minutes to be able to wipe everybody out while they're all um, tripping out. And so with that kind of experiment, like what was some of the evidence um, that you were finding that seemed to lead you uh, more and more in that direction? Well, yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I found when I started to dig further and further into it and spoke to a lot of the people in the Rendlesham field who had heard this story, knew a bit about it, but didn't really buy into it, so they didn't do much with the story, which, you know, for me, was the biggest mistake they could have made. Whether they were into the theory or not, you know, it should have, it should have been required to be, you know, investigated further. But one of the things that I found over and over again was a reference to a place, uh, a, a a facility, a top-secret facility in the UK called Port and Down. And Port and Down is kind of like the uh, UK equivalent of Fort Detrick, where they do a lot of research into chemical warfare, biological warfare, hallucinogens, things like this. 
And the rumour was, or not so much the rumour, but the story that was coming out from a number of various people um, in the UFO community um, was that there was a direct connection with Porton Down. Now, it wasn't just ufologists who had hit onto this as well. One of them was a guy named Lord Hill Norton. And Lord Hill Norton in the 1970s, if you, if you just Google him, Lord Hill Norton, um, UK Ministry of Defence, you'll see that in the 1970s, he was one of the most powerful figures in the Ministry of Defence and, and the UK military in the 1970s. And he got a deep interest in Rendlesham because, as he quite rightly said, you know, if it was a UFO and it landed on UK soil, well, that has to be an issue of national security proportions. That was his argument. Um, but during the course of his research, Hill Norton uncovered data that suggested that Port and Down were involved. And so I took this as bad as far as I could and sp actually spoke to um, several of the guys now long retired in, from the Royal Air Force Police who knew why Port and Down had a contingency in the woods. And it was basically, the, the story was that the night before the first night of encounters, a team of scientists came into the woods and strategically placed various devices which would um, carefully release low-grade hallucinogens into the woods. They would be timed to be released at the same time that the guys would be in the woods and when the projected image um, would be set to, to appear. So in other words, you know, it's amazing enough to see this sort of holographic image or images of, of things manifesting in the woods, but then you find your mind beginning to not work properly, shall we say, and, um, and going into like a hallucinogenic state and, and realizing that something really, really strange is going on. Now, some people might say, you know, well, they, they wouldn't do that on, you know, on a military personnel, surely, you know. But if you look back to 1964, and again, you can find this um, quite easily on the Internet. Um, in 1964, Porton Down, which had a deep interest in hallucinogens and particularly LSD in the mid to late 1950s, in 1964, they ran this really notorious program, project, uh, which nobody had heard of for years, but which was the, the information was eventually released through the UK Freedom Information Act. And what it was was that in 1964, a contingent of British Army personnel um, were taken out into an area of woodland, interesting enough, a little forested area, and they weren't told as to what was going to happen. And they were, they were all dosed with LSD. And if you look at the, the film which the government, the military personnel took, um, you can see them staggering around, and one of them looks like he's in the sort of the throes of a full-blown panic attack and there's um, a female nurse hanging onto his wrist and trying to mm. calm him down. So in this situation, you've got um, Porton Down um, performing hallucinogenic um, experiments on British personnel in the woods in 1964, just 16 years before uh, something extremely similar happened in Rendlesham Forest. Now, again, if you if you Google LSD, British Army, 1964. I'm googling that only, right now. You, well, if you <laughs> if you look like, on yeah. the YouTube, well, when you do the Google search, you should find a link to YouTube where you'll be able to see the footage. Which it only runs the part that the government has declassified runs to about four or five minutes, and and um, and you you know you've got the key. Um, issues, military, woods, hallucinogens, porting down. So when people say there's no way Portland would do anything like that in 1980, well, they did something almost identical in 1964, which is provable. So in that sense, you know, and what one of the people told me, this is sort of quoting them almost directly, they said that it was essentially like a low-grade hallucinogenic 
that would, um, you know, put not put them into a complete state of psychedelia, but it would be enough to place them in kind of um, a weirded out situation, which was because they, you know, the worst thing was that if they were totally zonked out, um, they wouldn't see the projected UFOs, you know. So it was like a, a careful balance between everything. And um, so that was one of the most interesting angles was the um, the, the connection between um, porting down and hallucinogens and, and making the, the parallels and, you know, the, the mirror images between what happened in 1964 and what happened in 1980. Well, that sounds almost like it's the UK version of MK Ultra that, you know, Porton Down was doing. Um, I mean, just like uh, over here, we had the, you know, exp- where they would just give people LSD to, you know, see what would happen and then see if they could, you know, do kind of like a Manchurian candidate kind of things to them and, and mind control and everything. And, um, and running those kind of experiments out of uh, Port and Downs, it you know it, it's interesting because uh, I feel like that um, the U.S. version of these kind of experiments has been known for a long time, and uh, you're kind of exposing the U.K. version because everybody is always like, yeah, obviously the CIA knows about the aliens or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, you know this idea. That, uh, you know, the, the British government still had, you know, still had its hands as dirty in, in kind of in these experiments, uh, just as the American government did. It just gets less coverage. Um, so, you know, when was when was this stuff kind of, you know, released? Like, uh, you know, when did it get out in the wild? What the, the hallucinogens, you mean? Well, no, the, the, just the information oh. about the Port and Downs experiments and, and things like that. Um, and was it part of a deeper program? Well, yes, it was, because um, we do know that Port and Down, particularly in the 50s and 60s, did liaise quite closely um, with the CIA on MK Ultra as well, you know, because the UK and the US are friends. So, um, you know, there was um, a significant sort of sharing of information to determine, you know, how the mind could be changed more and more. So, you know, it wasn't like they were sort of working um, apart from each other. They were actually sort of working together but in terms of in, in relation to your question in terms of the whole issue of Port and Down the first person um, who heard about this um, was way back in 1983 and a guy named Ray Boucher and Ray's still around today and still active in the in ufology and he um, his research into Rendlesham began in 1983 which was the year in which the rumours of the case started to trickle out. And Ray got information um, that was based on um, material that came from insiders at the base, that there was a connection with Porton Down and um, the likes of, or similar to LSD and things like this. So that angle, you know, of it potentially being something beyond a UFO event trickled out in 83 but between 83 and the early 90s for the most part people would talk about the potential of an experiment but they really wanted to just focus on um the ufo angle but certainly what uh, sort of um opened the doors was lord hill norton when he not only um, heard about the Port and Down story, but he actually went to the UK government because he was um, retired by then. He he went to the um, UK government and petitioned the House of Lords in London to tell and reveal everything they knew about the Port and Down link to Rendlesham Forest. And even though in the 1970s he um, was one of the most powerful figures in the UK military, um, by the time he started to ask, ask questions, he was long retired. And the House of Lords basically told him, sorry, you know, we've gone looking and we can't find anything. Go away. Right. It, and, was, all um, a, it was all just a weather balloon, Gramps. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that if you read the responses to Hill Norton, you know, they never said there was nothing to this and 
support and work down were not uh, involved, period. They never said that. What they said was, well, we've gone looking and we haven't been able to find any documents um, suggesting that Porton Down played an involvement. Now, saying that you couldn't find any files is very different to saying there are no files. It just means that one agency that was tasked with looking for the files couldn't find them. And, of course, you know, something so sensitive, the chances are that most most of the people who worked at Porton Down didn't even know about it. You know, it would be really compartmentalised. So, um, you know, the the wording of uh, the whole situation as it was given to Hill Norton was interesting. As I said, it wasn't, um, there's nothing to this or keep your mouth shut. It's Well, we went looking and um, we weren't able to find anything, which is a very carefully worded statement, you know. Well, it's almost mm-hmm. like, I mean, th- this idea that not everybody in government knows everything um, mm-hmm. reminds me of when exactly. John Podesta, who was the chief of staff to Bill Clinton, the president, he always was interested in UFOs. And after he, I mean, he said that like his biggest regret was he wasn't able to find more information. Um, mm. He wasn't able to find the truth. Now, whatever you think about John Podesta, and I know he's involved in a bunch of conspiracy theories and whatnot. Um, but, you know, and, and the fact that that, Tom DeLong from Blink-182 was emailing him and stuff. But it, it's also that idea, though, that even the chief of staff of White House, it, you know, you'd think that this guy probably has the top, top, uh, top secret security clearance to get into anything he wants to. And he can just call up the Pentagon and be like, send me over the UFO files. The president needs to see them. Um, and it doesn't even work like that. So the idea of different agencies holding on to secrets or not knowing stuff um, and then not sharing, uh, you know, it seems to be more of an indictment of bureaucracy than it, you know any kind of specific conspiracy to keep the data away. Um, but you know, you mentioned that uh, the focus of Rendlesham, and at least this, I know this has been for my experience and listening to people talk about it, is the uh, you know the extraterrestrial aspect. And so, have you found any kind of pushback uh, or any kind of? Um, like you're a, an apologist or you, you know, you're lying for the, you know, you're in league with him, Nick. Have, have you found anything specific, uh, you know, pushback coming out and saying like, no, I think it was an experiment. Yeah. You mean it's like, I'm one of them kind of thing. <laughs> right. <Benny Black. laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, if, I mean, I found this, you know, over this last sort of, um, 25 years of research in this sort of, subject, not just Rendlesham, but I mean, you know, the whole UFO subject itself, if you question, you know, a well-known and sort of well-loved UFO case and you question it, it's inevitable that somebody says, oh, you know, they're being paid by the FBI or the CIA or the NSA, you know, that those kind of claims, they just pour out. And a lot of it's just because of people you know certain people's paranoia um but for me you know i didn't write this book and do the research because i wanted to piss everybody off you know um or come across as you know nick's the bad guy of ufology kind of thing i wrote the book because the more and more data that i uncovered the more and more plausible and and likely for me at least the whole scenario came to be and my view is that when it comes to investigating UFO cases, we shouldn't go into the investigations with a pre-existing view or conclusion of what we want it to be. Nobody should want Rendlesham to be this or that. What we should do is look for the answers and present the data. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the time in ufology, People just want to hear cool, exciting stories. They don't want to hear about something that might be equally intriguing, but it has nothing to do with aliens. So a lot of it says it's sort of like the psychological approach of the UFO community. You know, it's like, why is Nick saying this? Well, I'm not saying it for the sake of it. I'm saying it because I think that's where the data leads.
Yeah, the little green men. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're, you're right. You're right. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, you know, we have had 40 years of talking about it and talking about it largely from an extraterrestrial angle. And then I jump in and say it wasn't. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I think the more I've looked into it, the more and more it seems for me at least to be the answer um and all i can do is put the information out now when the book was published it only actually came out um a week ago yesterday uh, and, and funnily enough i actually haven't even received my copies from the publisher yet that's how sort of um you know how new it is but um last weekend um sort of about nine to five friday saturday and sunday of last weekend I was just sort of responding and fencing off, uh, you know, questions where people would say, how can you say this, you know, this is not the answer. And I said, well, you know, just look at the data. And you don't even, you know, told people, you don't even have to read the book, just do your own research into things like Port and Down and, and ask why would Port and Down's personnel be at a UFO event, that kind of thing. And then people will say, oh, well, you, you, you're just working for the NSA. You know? and this, this went on and on for like three days. And, um, but that's, that's ufology, you know. I mean, uh, it's not something which I sort of lose sleep over. You know, I've got thick skin, and if somebody wants to have a good argument, I'm happy to have a good argument, you know. But the, the kind of tragic thing is there isn't really a need for those arguments and debates if you will everyone's willing to have an open mind and look at all the data you know and uh, but people are so closed mind and defensive you know it's like the same with roswell somebody questions roswell and it's well who are you working for why are you <laughs> saying that you know <laughs> right <laughs> Oh, Hill Norton. Hill Norton, yeah. Well, yeah, um, well, two of them were Royal Air Force police officers. You know, they're basically the police of the Royal Air Force, kind of like, you know, the um, the police arm of the, the U.S. Air Force. And I was able to speak to two of those who had had involvement had involvement back in the 19, back in 1980. And bear in mind, you know, we're talking about 40 years ago. And both of them at the time were like early 30s. So now they're sort of early to mid 70s. And um, one of, well, two of them spoke to me and essentially said that they were there to look after reports and files and documentation on this event. That was sort of, um, it was tied in with an organization called the Provost and Security Services, um, which was kind of like the James Bonds of the Air Force. And their job was to oversee the files on the experiments and to ensure that they didn't sort of get out of hand and get leaked outside, that kind of thing. And um, one of them who reportedly um, was um, actually involved in the experimentation from the perspective of keeping an eye on the guys who were subjected to the hallucinogens and just keeping a watch on them to make sure, you know, things didn't go sort of too wild. Um, and when I tracked him down, he lives in Scotland. He basically, I won't say it on radio, but he told me to F off. <laughs> and, and I'm not, when I say that, I'm not um, exaggerating or... That was basically what he said, and um, and he knew exactly. You know, as soon as I got to the issue of Rendlesham Forest 
and the whole UFO angle. And then I brought up the issue of the experiment. He told that's when he told me to basically take a walk and <laughs> just slam the phone, just slam the phone down. Now that in itself kind of tells you a great deal that 40 years after this event occurred, that someone today, like long retired right. from, you know, the, the Royal Air Force, Air Force Police, um, would, would respond like that in 2020, you know. And um, so it was kind of little things like that that started me off. But another one, I mentioned Ray Boucher earlier, who was the first guy who heard the stories about um, Porton Down. Now, in 1985, Ray, who lives in Nebraska, and he used to be a state director for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, well, Ray decided to do something which a lot of people in relation to Rendlesham haven't done, and may, Ray may be the only one who has. And what he did, he went to his senator, uh, Jim Exon, and said, look, you know, um, you essentially work for me. I'd like you to look into this case and see what you can find because it involves U.S. personnel on U.K. soil and a lot of the the guys involved, are, you know, having trauma and um, issues and problems after experienced, um, you know, whatever it was that happened. And Exxon agreed to, but he was obviously, because he didn't know much about UFOs, he said that, you know, okay, I'll take a look. And... It was interesting because things started to change after the um, communication between Exxon and Ray Boucher began to expand further. And Exxon came to realize that, yes, something had happened. And the more that Ray pushed, the more and more that Exxon said, well, you know, I've gone as far as I can and I don't think I can help you anymore. But one of, his fine, one of Exxon's final statements, which is really kind of telling when you look at it from the perspective of a secret experiment, um, he wrote back, he didn't even call, he wrote back to Ray and said that it may be the case that I found more information on what happened, but I cannot find any evidence of a UFO presence. That was basically what he said. So in other words... He was saying something happened, but it had nothing to do with UFOs. Now, if you read um, the actual letter from Exxon to Ray, which, is, which I've reproduced in the book, Ray very generously let me use uh, copies of the uh, official documentation from Exxon to him in the book. And it almost reads like the words of an attorney, you know, that, um, well, maybe there's more information to it, mm. But, you know, maybe I found some more information, but I didn't find anything relative to UFOs. It was a really carefully worded sentence to which I feel kind of allowed Exxon to sort of get out of that scenario by essentially protecting himself, you know, by, by saying, well, you know, something happened. I looked for something. I found something, but it wasn't UFO-based. That's sort of a really carefully worded situation, you know, and I do sometimes wonder if it was, you know, written by some legal-based person, you know. Well, to save face, because the idea is that um, if it's, uh, you know, you just say like, well, something happened, but uh, UFOs weren't involved. And uh, that's all I can tell you, because that's what people are exploring. That's what they're looking into it. Um and, so, and that's that all that rules anybody, out a whole lot of stuff too, though. <laughs> right. It's, but it's all that anybody cares about, you know, as we sit there right. and, you know, we're like, okay, is it aliens? Tell, let's just let us know if it's aliens. Um, when, uh, if the inquiry would have been like, well, was this some kind of government LSD experiment, uh, that, you know, freaked these soldiers out? Are they, what are they doing to our own people? Uh, kind of thing. There'd be a lot more to answer for <laughs> than just covering up, uh, a UFO landing or extraterrestrial thing it would be um you know do you have the moral authority uh or you know the legal authority to do those kind of uh experiments on you know your fellow countrymen your own soldiers well you're right and i, I point that out in the book you know that um 
regardless of which side of the coin you're on, you know, whether you believe it's extraterrestrial or you go down the secret experiment angle, the fact is you, you can make a good case that if it was um, U.S. personnel being used against their knowledge, you know, and, and essentially like guinea pigs, uh, if that was the case, arguably that would be more and more controversial than the idea that aliens really did land, you know. Um, anything that's to do with human experimentation, you know, without the the direct knowledge of the people involved and which leaves massive amounts of trauma and paranoia and fear and concerns as to what they should say or not say. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys were just like 20, 21 at that time, you know, and now they're like 60 and they've, they've gone through this, the trauma for 40 years. So that's why I think, you know, it, it would be at the very least um, on a par in terms, if it was a UFO event, you know, it'd be on a par of it being at least equally controversial as the UFO angle, but arguably even more when you're, you know, you're plucking people out basically and and deciding, yeah, we're gonna, you know, screw with these people's minds. Well, I mean, what happens if what happens if it's a bad trip? What happens if somebody freaks out and shoots his, you know, another guy on the um, on the base? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what happens? There's a, what if somebody accidentally kills themselves. I mean, they're also armed. Let's not forget. Well, there was a sto- Go ahead. There was a story of one of the guys um, just sort of like bundled up, just crying in like a total state of hysteria. Um, a lot. Well, of I did that last like- week, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge the guy. <laughs> I had a rough week. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but um, but yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of the guys have, I, I would say something like sort of bordering on, um, you know, something PTSD, you know, and um, and things like that. You know, they're not like a, a simple thing to deal with. I mean, when you've you've got these memories and these situations, these images before you. And, you know, some of them being told not to talk about this or else. And you can easily understand how it would impact on the rest of your life. And even worse scenario, that may actually have been the the purpose of the operation was to see, you know, the the extent to which the experiment worked. You know, if it was just a case, everybody said, well, hang on, this is just someone's playing with us. That would be a very different thing. But the guys were incredibly altered, you know, and changed in in varying ways. And I think that would surely impact on the experiment. The ones who were running the program would recognize, you know, the, the significance of of the responses and then they could potentially think, well, you know, if we can do this in an experiment, we can do something even bigger and grander on the battlefield. If we ever go to war with Russia or whatever. Well, I think what's interesting right there, Nick is, is, um, you mentioned that they were changed forever, irreparably, you know, um, and that just starts making it think, more in the hallucinogenic vein because there's all that talk, particularly now, there's this idea that um, hallucinogenics can make the brain more plastic, uh, where you're more suggestible, where, you know, that's the idea was using um, them for, you know, PTSD sufferers and, and, and things like that. So you have a chance to like shortcut those path, you know, those pathways that are burned in through, um, traumatic experiences uh to kind of let your mind find a way to you know find a way to uh create a new pathway and that's the idea of the hallucinogenic and that's part of something that michael pollan talks about in his hallucinogenic book um so but this idea that they're you know it's because they were their brain chemistry was being altered they didn't just see a ufo i mean if the uh, if it was an experiment they didn't just see a ufo they were put into a position where their brains were completely plasticized so that they could be altered manipulated and stuff and then shown these crazy things um you know i think that evidence where you say like they never were the same that almost points more in the direction of an experiment than it does even in in seeing a flying saucer you're right, and I think, um, <coughs> excuse me, and I think 
that's one of one of the important things about this is that um, you know you've picked up on a lot of the things that so many people in ufology don't pick up on. And as I said, the main reason is because you know it, I think for a lot of people, and I'm not you know I'm not being disrespectful to people in ufology, but it it does come down to the fact that a lot of people just don't want to touch these alternative scenarios because they've grown up and embraced these amazing events and these incredible mm. incidents. And they just don't want to hear that everything they've researched or read about was actually a terrestrial um, program of the military. Um, and I, I would, you know, I just wish that people wouldn't, focus so much on that I want to believe scenario, you know, Fox Mulder. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's okay to believe in things. We all believe in something, you know. I believe one day I'll I'll win the lottery, but I probably won't. (laughs) (laughs) But but joking aside, everybody has a belief about something. But at the end of the day, a belief is just what it is. It's just a belief. And I think looking for evidence you know is what we should be going for um but sometimes evidence isn't as cool and and as exciting as aliens exactly nothing really beats the narrative of you know the little green men coming out of the ship in that field and it's just so much more fun (laughs) than thinking about some guys getting experimented on by other humans <laughs> well the big irony is i agree with you on that it is it would be cooler <laughs> yeah and it'd be more amazing <laughs> even for me if it was proved to be extra right it's just i just don't think it is though now so. yeah um you know like you mentioned i mean even peter robbins who we, we mentioned in the beginning with his book the exit mm-hmm. eastgate um he had to kind of go back on some of the things that were said that like once that kind yeah. of larry warren uh, came out a couple of years ago as lying about some of um, the elements of his life and stuff like that. And then ended up, he ended up, uh, Peter, who, I mean, he must have probably told that story at a million conventions. When he told it to Wendy and I, we were like, we believe. <laughs> we're like, testify, brother. <laughs> like, you know, and um, having to go back on years of that uh, because his, you know, well, his co-writer. Well, he did. But I mean, I... I still think there's something to Larry's story. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why is because uh, for years, Colonel Holt, who wrote the memo to the British Ministry of Defence as to what happened, um, Colonel Holt um, has stated on many occasions that he feels that Larry had his mind played with. And he hasn't really expanded on that to a significant degree, but he, you know, he will say that he thinks Larry had his mind messed with. Now, my view is that because one person says this and it may um, differentiate from somebody else's words and change, somebody says that the story changes. Well, if your mind has been blown left, right and center by, you know, uh, hallucinogenic substances, then in all probability, you cannot say for sure that what you saw is exactly what you think you saw. And so I think for a lot of these guys, you know, it's it's hard to say what they actually saw. And I kind of take that approach with Larry, that if his mind was messed with, well, he has no real way of saying for sure what he saw versus what he didn't see if he was in that sort of state of mind. Oh, sure, because... Right, a hallucination can be very powerful, and people can be convinced that what yeah. they're seeing is real. And I think the first thing we go to in situations like this is we always say, like, "Oh, that guy must be lying." You know, he's looking for attention. This is a hoax because um, that the first thing we do, we feel like if somebody's, you know, uh, that they're either either what they say is true or what they say is a lie that they can talk, concocted for attention. Instead of well, they may believe what they saw, but what they mm. saw be, may not may not be what they think they saw. Yeah, that's why it gets so confusing when you've you've got memories, some of which may be real memories, and other memories you think are absolutely the real deal. But when 
they're not, but the the person doesn't realise that. So, you know, it's kind of like if you and Wendy were placed into that position now, how would you view it ten years from now? If you knew with inside you, you knew that you couldn't trust your own memories. That must be oh, a really terrifying. terrifying situation, you know, to be put into. Well, I, yeah, I have to say there's, you know, after 20 years of touring different places and, and playing different clubs and venues and everything, I'm sure there are a few occasions where after a pitcher of beer, our memories don't quite yeah. match up to exactly <laughs> how the show We've went. We've all had that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's a... a that's a great way. And I, had, I hadn't thought about it that way before, um, that if these guys' minds were messed with, they could have definitely seen things. They believe they saw things. Right. And now we're on, uh, instead of saying that these guys are making it up, well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, I, I believe, you know, the guys, like, for example, I point out in the book, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, who are two of the most important players in the story. You know, there's no doubt about it. Without them, there's no story, really. But it's, you know, and, and uh, I don't think they've ever lied at all or exaggerated. They've told the story as, as confirming, you know, what they saw themselves. But if you are in this sort of altered state and you don't realize it, then what you actually firmly remember in your mind isn't necessarily what was it going on at the same time, you know. Well, uh, you know, that's similar almost to um, what I think of when I think about Bob Lazar uh, and the Area 51 story um, that I think Bob Lazar saw a whole bunch of stuff in Area 51. I don't necessarily think it was aliens or anything like that. Uh, And, you know, he went out and told people, you know, he passed a lie detector test, all that kind of stuff. Like, I think he saw something, but... I think he saw what they wanted him to see and spread the message that um, certain people wanted him to spread. And this this kind of thing where um, we think of these people have to be shysters or hoaxer, you know, hoaxers or all these kind of things, um, you know, uh, they don't have to be. They could just be spreading the message of what they think they saw. And I, I think that's, that's a powerful way to put it. Um, and it gets into the conspiracy of the Rendlesham UFO conspiracy that— um, it's uh, you know it's better for the British government, for the uh, you know, for people to think that they're covering up a UFO landing than it is that they're covering up an experiment on their own poor soldiers uh, in the middle middle of night in 1980. Right. Yeah, and and one other thing that's important as well, you know, this the UFO subject today gets you know a lot of legitimacy really, you know, on on mainstream media. Back in 1980, you know, when I was just a kid, um, back then, if you talked about UFOs, you know, you're sort of ripe for the nuthouse, that kind of thing, you know. And, um, and it wasn't seen as, you know, it was like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, get alive, that kind of thing. So, in other words, talking about UFOs back then does n- did not have the sort of... Um, Stigma. You know... There's this, yeah, that um, that it doesn't have today. There's no stigma really, really today. You know, I mean, a lot of people are really interested in the subject. You know, mainstream media covers it. There's a lot of TV shows, um, newspapers cover it um, in a in a serious way. So back then, something like a UFO story didn't actually get much of a pickup on the part of the UK media other than when the News of the World um, opened the story. But the News of the World was like the UK's most outrageous... Um, right, it's bad boy and uh, stuff like that. It's Yeah, it was just like a tabloid, yeah. And, um, and so, in other words, a lot of people just dismissed it. And so, in that sense, using the UFO subject in 1980 would have been a really good way to keep people not going towards it, but away from it. Right. And, and now, uh, you know, now it's the Air Force coming out saying, yep, UFOs are real. We're, I guess we're going to need some funding to fight them, guys. Um, meanwhile, it was a way to say that it's, you know, dis- discredit everything and disavow it uh, back in the day. So uh, that's a great point, too. You know, Nick, I can't uh, wait to check out the book myself. And I can't wait to link everybody uh, in the show notes for this particular episode where you will be able to find uh, a link where you can pick up a copy of 
the Rendlesham Forest UFO conspiracy, a close encounter exposed as a top secret government experiment. And you guys can uh, read that book for yourself and check out the hard work that once again, Nick has put uh, into uh, one of his books, one of the most prolific uh, paranormal authors. And I highly recommend all of his books, but this one is a different take on an old UFO story. And if, if this interested you at all, please go check out the show notes and you get a link right to Nick's book and you can pick it up there. Um, last question, Nick, what is next on your paranormal author agenda? What are you tackling next? Well, I've got one that comes out in October, so it's not too far away, and uh, published by uh, Red Wheel Books, and um, it's called The Martians, and it looks—it's a book that looks at the um, the scenario of there once having been a sort of a thriving Martian civilization once, and um, and looking at all the data and the strange pictures that have come back from NASA. Um, from Mars, um, oh. you know, in relation to what seemed to be sort of the remnants of old structures and things like that. So it's sort of like um, like a looking back deep into the history of the planet of Mars. You know, was there water on Mars? Were there once Martians? Could they still be there deep underground? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's like, you know, it'd be an interesting but controversial take on. Um, you know the, the whole Martian angle, if you like. Right, straight out of the you know straight out of the Martian Chronicles, or even Total Recall about the uh, the old life on Mars. Well, looking forward to that. Yep. Um, uh, we'd love to talk to you when that comes out as well. So uh, right, everybody cool. out there, make sure you check out uh, Nick's new book. Once again, it is the Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy: A Close Encounter Exposed as a Top Secret government experiment thank you very much for your time today nick thank you for everybody who joined us online and uh we will see you on the other side thanks guys all right hope you enjoyed that conversation with nick redfern about the rendlesham ufo conspiracy now sunspot is still playing regularly doing live streams um doing shows, releasing music. You can find it all at sunspotmusic.com. If you'd like to continue the conversation, check out some uh, invite-only events and stuff where we talk about paranormal and music and everything, you can check that on our Patreon, patreon.com slash sunspotmusic. Now, since this is See You on the Other Side and you are used to hearing a song at the end of every episode, well... This episode, we did not write a song specifically about uh, Nick Redfern's uh, Rendlesham UFO conspiracy, but in 2021, he released a book about Marilyn Monroe's secret diary that JFK and Robert F. Kennedy were feeding her UFO secrets in the bedroom. She wrote them down in a diary, and when the CIA found out about that, well, they had to... They had to take care of business, and that's how Marilyn died. So this is a song based on Nick's book about Marilyn Monroe's secret diary, and it's off our 2022 release, The Strangest Frequency. Here's Sunspot with Dear Diary.
thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.